My name is Georgiana, I am CEO and founder of BeagleCat and soon you will be listening to Employer Branding, the Inside Podcast. In this podcast, I regularly talk to employer branding managers, talent acquisition managers and human resources managers in tech companies in Germany, Romania and the US. For more content on employer branding related themes, go to employerbranding.tech or beaglecat.com. Stay tuned! Hi everyone, Georgiana here with a new episode of Employer Branding the Inside podcast. It's been a long time since I uh, recorded an episode because I'm, I'm working a full-time job now, which means actually four jobs in total. Um, but I'm super excited to be doing this again. I'm especially excited to be speaking to someone who's been very inspirational to me in employer branding um, since I took up the discipline, so to say, since I started working on employer branding related projects. His name is Brian Adams. He is the founder of PH Creative. And I think PH Creative is one of the most reputable companies when it comes to employer branding out there. I will give him the opportunity to introduce himself in just a little bit. I just have to say, Brian, once again, I'm super excited to be meeting you and I can't wait for you to share everything you know about employer branding. So welcome on this episode and thanks once again for doing it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm glad to hear that you're you're back with the show and congratulations on juggling the four jobs. That's insane, but we're all very lucky that you make time to do this. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Brian, you've been doing PH Creative and implicitly employer branding for about 18 years. You started in the UK I gather that from the accent, but now you're located in California. So can you please tell me a little bit about how this all started and how you uh, changed locations? And maybe did you offer employer branding from the very beginning? Yes. So 18 years ago, we started as a a general uh, marketing company. We did print, we did digital, we built websites, Mm -hmm. we did a whole host of things. and we had no point of difference. We weren't anything particularly special. We thought we were, but you know, we struggled as a small business. We were working with all sorts of local small companies. And um, a few years in, we started working with a couple of brands to do uh, some recruitment marketing, which was new to us. Yeah. But we identified a little bit of a trend and we started to focus in. And before too long, we decided, hey, this is something special it's different it gives us a point of difference we like working with hr people because they retain our calls and they're super nice so the specialist sort of niching of the business uh, stemmed a few years in actually uh, and we're super glad that we did do it because it allowed us to build up some expertise in a in an emerging field contribute to an industry and um and you know it's it's definitely the reason I attribute to working with some of the world's biggest brands today. Yes, indeed. I, I saw that on your um, on your LinkedIn profile. And I think maybe this is also um, one of the reasons why you were able to gather all of your knowledge into the Give and Get Employer Branding book, which I read about a year ago, or yeah, I think during COVID, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I was wondering, why would you say companies still shy away from creating and maintaining an authentic EVP. You speak a a lot about that in the book too, but what does practice, what has practice shown you so far? Yeah, so I think um, 
A lot of times organizations will focus on employer brand out of necessity or a need. Usually there's something on fire, like people are leaving the company too quickly, or there's a real challenge in terms of how to attract um, the talent they need to grow. It's, it's sort of not yet made its way to sort of conventional business strategy books and so on and so forth, because I think it's, it's new, relatively speaking. Um, so I don't think it's organizations shy away from it. I think there's still some organizations that are a little bit uh, naive to the fact that you can do more and be more strategic and, and approach recruitment, retention, culture in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually, I have um, a more strategic question, so to say, uh, following up on, on your reply. Before writing Give and Get Employer Branding, your company and you delivered the first ever employer brand to be adopted as a main corporate brand in a Fortune 500 company. Magellan Health is the name of it. You have it on your LinkedIn profile stated as well. Mm-hmm. And you say that it was delivered in less than 100 days for 100K shattering conventions of time, budget, and approach. My question is, how did you manage such an effort? And what <laughs> actually led the company to, to actually accept the unification of the employer brand and, and the corporate brand? Because this is really, really unusual. Yeah, so it, it is. At the time, uh, that health company was struggling to find any point of difference from a talent perspective, but probably also from a marketing perspective. I think that, that's, that's fair to say. But actually, that was actually that was our first U.S. client uh, moving from the U.S. And it's what really helped us establish a, a firm footing in, in the U.S. And our client partner leading the employer brand on the Magellan side was was Charlotte Marshall, who um, turned out to be my co-author of Give and Get Employer Branding. Mm-hmm. And she was incredibly experienced. She had experienced building, I think it was five employer brands before we worked together, but she'd done it the conventional way. So she was super intrigued of of our approach because it was different and she recognized the value in it. But what it meant from a working relationship perspective is we were both organized and we were both able to move quickly. And we saw this as the opportunity to prove our methodology versus convention. So the planets aligned, all the pieces fell in the right place and we were able to produce fantastic work. In, in record time and um, it, it really made an impact on the, on the organization, but it went on to make an impact on the industry as well, I'm glad to say. And has it happened again since? Well, <laughs> I always say that it's possible because we've done it before. Um, you know, there was a few tears before bedtime a number of times when we, when we did it that fast. Mm-hmm. I'm not in any rush, but it's almost like, you know, breaking the four minute mile, you know, it's everything's everything's more possible once it's been done. Um, and, and really, the reason we talk about that case study, uh, obviously, it, it's the sort of first differentiator from, from with the give and get approach. But convention was, you know, it takes 12, 18 months to build an employer brand before that. And by that time, your organization could have changed things move on, research gets stale and old. Um, so 100 days is super quick. It's it's not necessary to do it that fast, mm-hmm. but the sooner you do do it, the more authentic it is and the easier it is to uh, launch with momentum and get adoption. Um, 
and, and get a return on investment in, in the same financial year, which businesses seem to like. Um, but the sooner you launch, the sooner you can test it and then start working on refining it and making sure it's always reflecting um, the culture and the employee experience. And you were, you were mentioning authenticity <clears throat> a few moments ago. I'm wondering, is authenticity the only way to win the war for talent? Or would you say is the most qualified one? Well, you know, I think, I think everybody will agree that if you build a fantastic employer brand that's an illusion and doesn't represent the, um, the truth about what you will find on the inside, it might be incredibly powerful to attract an unfair share of talent to your organization, but keeping that talent immediately becomes a problem once they find out their expectations aren't being met. So what we find is not only is it the most ethical and fair way to attract talent because you're better mm -hmm. set the expectation, it's also more powerful if you lean into the harsh realities and adversities and tell the full truth of what you might find. Because this isn't just about being more authentic about the negative aspects of an employee experience. It's also having the opportunity to tell the narrative in the context of why some of those harsh realities might exist. And typically what we find is if there is an adversity, a challenge or specific capabilities required to thrive in an organization, it's also the greatest source of a sense of achievement, pride and passion. Because if you can thrive in those circumstances and move your career forward or grow as a person, then that feels good. So a lot of the time, the value is being left on the table by ignoring that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, moving a little bit to the talent acquisition realm, if I can say so, which one would you choose and why? Hiring for skills or hiring for personality? Or both, maybe? <laughs> so that's an interesting question. And I think, um, I'm not sure about personality. I would... I would mm -hmm. probably say capability mm -hmm. rather than personality because it, it includes, yeah. Yeah, it includes um, resilience and yeah. um, it includes personality, but actually it's more inclusive. So I think, I think that would be my preference from a capability um, and a culture match and a culture add. You know, the... The truth about this is people need to be able to also do their job. So there's, there is a balance. There's a hygiene bar um, to, to both of these things. Mm -hmm. and I think getting a balance and um, being super clear about what it takes to thrive on both sides is, is really important. But of course, skills can be taught, um, you know, so, so I, I tend to lean towards the, the capability and culture side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, on the same note, because we we at Evolution struggle with job descriptions and all the companies that I've worked with struggle with job ads and, and writing those job ads that are a bit different and more authentic than, than most. Do you have a tip for writing a powerful job description or if you were to just state one tip that people could apply starting tomorrow, what would that be? Yeah, so... In the book that we, we give away a formula for a, for a job descriptions um, and we talk about starting with empathy, leading with trying to connect the role of this of this vacant vacant job with the higher purpose of the organization. And if you can 
if you can sell a sense of purpose, impact, and belonging right up top with the headline, and usually that could be a question like, would you like to impact or you know do something that the organization stands for? Um, then that's usually a good way to start with the hearts and minds at the beginning and then immediately create some curiosity and some surprise about the role and draw them into the insights of the specifics that are required and have a strong call to action at the end. And I think social proof, um, we're in a, an age now where um, people trust people more than brands. So I think hearing from employees so they can you know, describe the team, describe the work, I think that's an important part of the mix as well these days. And it's not, it's not easy, certainly at scale, but you know, if you think Amazon sometimes split test uh, product pages and they can be eight to 12 feet long um, in terms of how much content, how many reviews, how many um, product descriptions they have. This is the sharp end of e-commerce and the job description on a careers website is exactly the same. So why should it be easy? This is competitive. Uh, so it's it's about trying to get all of those ingredients in and take candidates on a, on a journey where they can make an informed decision. And, you know, we are trying to sell the organization, but as long as we do it with the truth and yeah. we give a, a well-rounded view of what you will find, you know, the, the tough stuff as well as the, the really good stuff, and the link between them, then, you know, I think that's the ideal approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is sadly easier said than done. But, yeah. um, um, what mistakes have you seen company do when it comes to career pages? Because they tend to look similar, identical, almost. Yeah, well, you know, I guess the biggest sin really is just allowing whatever is in your ATS, your applicant tracking system to, mm -hmm. to just squirt on the page and just you know um hope that people are going to apply for jobs based on what they read i mean we've seen some horrific examples of copy that really isn't fit to be shown to to candidates so um not taking due care over um the the, the job ads I, I guess the first thing the second thing is um is not using the employer brand to its full extent once you've developed it um because I think you know you it's it's a huge miss if you if you're not activating with mm -hmm. um, with strategy and scale and, and using everything available to you, um, and then I guess the final thing really is thinking that you need to brag about your company and brag about the role and just talk about strengths, benefits, and opportunities, and not uh, include. The good stuff about you know why you'll be challenged and what it's like on the worst day as well as the best day exactly you you work with big companies companies such as apple or american airlines for example but i'm i'm thinking that you've worked with startups as well hmm. are there any common elements between the two are there mistakes that both parties make yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, we're just talking about people trying to connect with people. So all of the principles apply, whether you're a, an organization of one or an organization of one million. Of course, mm -hmm. you find it's easier to design the culture and the employee experience that you want, rather than try and change something or manage something once it's scaled. 
So we love working with startups um, that are more aspirational and have an opportunity to be more agile and more empathetic and compassionate to what their people actually want. You know, so that can be fun. Usually they're the brave, creative ones as well. You know, so we get to do more fun stuff. Um, but, you know, a lot of the a lot of the principles, all of the principles and, and the approach are exactly the same. Um, you know, I guess the mistakes yeah. that we see in the industry is the sort of just leading with the strengths, benefits and opportunities. Um, and thinking that you need to be the shiniest, most attractive in the marketplace and try and be attractive to everybody rather than yeah. understand the audience that are ideal to you. Um, you know, so the the mistakes that we see doesn't really correlate to how large your organization is. Um, and if if anything, it's it's easier and it can be used as a as a competitive advantage for small organizations telling a more authentic, inspirational story than their large competitors. Mm -hmm. Now, coming back a little bit to the um, talent acquisition part of the, of the interview, during of the interview, sorry, of the podcast, I wanted to ask during a job interview, which mm -hmm. party should be the first to break up the pattern and just be honest? Is <laughs> so, that everybody lies, right? What a great question. Um, I think by and large, it's the brand's responsibility to own the narrative and um, and be clear with expectations of of the candidate. And you know, the candidate is usually in a situation of high stress and you know is nervous and you know trying to make a great impression and so on and so forth. So the job of the organisation is to settle those nerves and be clear with. Um, with what's on offer. So I would say, by and large, it's the responsibility of, of the brand to break that cycle and be clear about, um, you know, what you might expect. And I mean, in our interviews, we talk about the five reasons not to join PH. So people really get a good idea of, oh, okay, you know. And essentially, if you're not putting, if you're not providing enough information for a candidate to make an informed decision about the reality of a role, then I don't think, you know, we've, we've done our job as, as a brand. The exception to this is um, see, very senior roles. I would expect a vice president or a senior director to turn up on an interview and answer mm -hmm. questions, but then clearly yeah. break the pattern with, yeah, okay, I've read all of that stuff. What's it really like? And I think with more senior positions, you have the opportunity to assert yourself and and to really dig. Regardless, though, at some point in the in the the interview, and usually it's at the end, do you have any questions for us? I think it makes a great first impression if you are curious and yeah. and you do have some questions that say, "Hey, look, you know, everything sounds great. What are we missing? What haven't we talked about? What am I going to find on my worst day?" You know, if there was a reason for people to leave, a predominant reason for people to leave, why mm -hmm. is that? Um, and I think yeah. if you've got the confidence and clarity to ask that question in an interview, you, you're going to quickly become a standout candidate. 
um, you know, because it's smart. This is a really important decision, a career decision next to getting married or moving house or having children. This is this is up where up there with the big life decisions, uh, you know, so so why not ask those questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are excellent questions, actually. Now, as we're, we're approaching the end of um, this discussion, I'm wondering, are there things that you predict for 2023 when it comes to employer branding? I'll be asking this question to all of my guests by the end of the year, just to see if we can draw some unanimous conclusions. So I don't know whether this is going to happen in 2023, um, but I think what we will start to see is organizations become a lot more strategic and longer term with how they protect their reputation as an employer. And I think what that means is more organizations are going to realize that they need to invest in their alumni community. Like when you see Twitter uh, and Meta making thousands and thousands of layoffs, Netflix before them and um, lots of other tech companies, um, a big component of protecting your reputation over the long term is how you treat people when you're offboarding and mm-hmm. how you engage with them and retain some element of community after they've left. So I think we'll start seeing the industry focus a little bit more on alumni community. Whether that happens next year or a couple of years down the line, I don't know. But the smart organizations are already thinking about it. And if you think about that, the alumni community is the community that is guaranteed to grow. Uh, usually it means over time it's going to increase in seniority and uh, influence. So having a seemingly neutral community championing your brand is a, is a great thing. And it's a, it's a fantastic way to protect your reputation over the long haul. So I think, I think that's, that's what we're going to see out. And then, of course, more immediate in 2023, all tech companies are shedding their tech talent. And then the rest of the world, the rest of the organizations that aren't pure tech organizations are still in the early stages of digital transformation. So we're going to see a huge transfer of power and talent uh, dispersed into lots of other sectors and industries. And when it comes to the cyclical um, turn of the economy, when tech companies need to hire that tech talent back, Mm -hmm. you find that their employer brand is extremely important because gone are the days where you can demand a developer works long hours or comes into the office or, you know, works under the conditions of a a conventional tech company. So we're going to see organizations grow up and mature very quickly. and, And that probably will happen towards the end of next year. And you were mentioning briefly how um, tech companies are doing layoffs. I'm I'm shocked and and angry at what's happening around me here in Berlin. And I see it happening in in Romania where everyone's talking about a hiring freeze or then cautious hiring. And I'm wondering, how did we get here? This is unbelievable. You guys were hiring like crazy six months ago, four months ago, sometimes even two months ago. And now what's going on? What's what's the plausible explanation for that? Other than, for example, in in, in VCs, uh, I mean, in companies backed by by VCs, they just hired to hire, and not because they really needed the people. Well, you know, when the economy is going up and up and up and up and up, and your competitors around you are growing, uh, there's a land grab for talent. People are making choices. 
you're losing your best talent, um, then, you know, companies, leaders of these companies make short-sighted decisions because there is opportunity tomorrow. What we know is the economy is cyclical and, you know, you can't just keep going up forever. So it's, it's going to come down. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what we're experiencing. So there's been some short-sighted decisions here and organizations are, are paying the price. When you see companies like Apple, the reason they're really secure, obviously they're sort of very, very, very cash positive, but they'll be able to retain their talent through leaner periods and down, downturns by and large. You know, and, and the organizations that understand the value of talent will fight to keep hold of the talent they've got uh, as much as possible. Because as sure as we are of companies letting people go, it's not going to be too long before they're trying to hire them back again. You know, so. Um, We've seen it happen before, right? Two years ago. Oh, yeah. Many, many, many times before. Before our lifetime, you know, it's it's just the way of the economy. Um, the difference is organizations are for the first time in a hundred years. You know, this generation organizations are learning that people really are the only competitive advantage in business. So they're becoming more empathetic and compassionate, and st- strategically empathetic and compassionate with how they treat people. Um, but the lesson here is um, the tech industry has been far too aggressive and yeah. they're paying the, paying the price now and the consequences are risk to their reputation. When Meta needs to hire again in the not too distant future, yep. there's 11,000 people out there that aren't going to be quick to apply for that, that role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. But I will say that Mark Zuckerberg let them go with, with grace and professionalism much better than Elon Musk, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's more damage control happening in some companies compared to others. Would you say that's, that's better employer branding in the long run? It definitely is without a shadow of a doubt. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, demonstrating that you're at least empathetic and you're considering how people feel, you know, Mm -hmm. with dignity and respect, it's, it's an important factor. And going back to the alumni conversation a little bit earlier, um, there hasn't really been any sort of backlash from from Meta. You know, there hasn't been any angry employees. Everybody sort of oh, no, understands, you know, mm-hmm. with grace and dignity and respect, even though Meta laid off three times more people than at Twitter. If you look at how Elon Musk did it, that's a really good lesson and an example of how not to do it. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Great. Well, this was it. Thank you once again for uh, for agreeing to participate and to share your your knowledge, and um, good luck with everything. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed talking to you. And good luck with the uh, the new revitalized series. I'll be listening um, and cheering you on. Thank you.